A reading from God's Word, Psalm 127 by Solomon. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand watch in vain. In vain you rise up early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat, for he grants sleep to those he loves. Children are a heritage from the Lord, offspring a reward from him. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are children born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be put to shame when they contend with their opponents in court. The word of the Lord. If you don't know, that was Elsa. She runs our fifth and sixth grade ministry. And uh, yeah, she, she just does an awesome job. I uh, talk to people about what's happening at Waterstone, and if they have fifth and sixth grade kids, they're thrilled with uh, what their kids are experiencing. Uh, it's just a great ministry. Let's pray. Father, we just want to recognize the presence of your spirit here this morning. Um, ask that he would be strong in our midst, that he would speak to our hearts, challenge our minds, encourage our souls. Oh, we pray that we'd hear your voice this morning as we look clearly uh, and deeply into your word. Would you speak and uh, transform us, Lord? Help us become more and more of what you want us to be as we live our lives before you. Uh, may your word mold us and shape us. Pray for that to happen this, this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Madeline Levine is a counselor who works primarily with uh, teenagers. And she says, uh, in fact, she's done this for 25 years, but she says over the last few years she's been seeing a shift in the issues that teenagers are wrestling with. Um, a lot of them are, are really smart, come from successful families, uh, pretty affluent, but uh, she's noticed that they're wrestling more and more with a sense of emptiness. It tells the story of a little 15-year-old girl who came to see her on a Friday. It was her last appointment for the week. When the little girl showed up, uh, she was uh, what Levine calls in Cutter's Disguise. Uh, she had a t-shirt on that had long sleeves that came down halfway through her palm. And then she had torn holes uh, near the ends of the sleeves and the cuffs so that she could put her thumb through so to hold the, the sleeves down. She came in and began talking to her, and through the session, she finally was able to get her to roll up her sleeve. Um, and she saw that what she had done is inscribed on her forearm with a razor blade the word empty. She had written on the outside what she was feeling on the inside. I, I think in our culture, we are wrestling with a, a crisis of meaning and purpose. People who are trying to, 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 to find significance in their lives. And, and they're wrestling with this feeling of emptiness. And I don't think it's just kids. I think lots and lots of people wrestle with that feeling of emptiness. Now, typically, if that's true, we don't write it on our forearms, but you know what we do? I think most people try to cover it up with uh, busyness. There's an article in the New York Times 2012 
the guy was writing about what he calls the busy trap. And uh, it, it, this, this article garnered 800 responses. Uh, it, it touched a nerve. This is kind of a summary. This quote is a summary of what his argument was. He says, if you live in America in the 21st century, you probably had to listen to a lot of people tell you how busy they are. It's become the default response when you ask anyone how they're doing. Busy. Oh, so busy. Crazy busy. It is pretty obviously a boast disguised as a complaint. And the stock response is a kind of congratulation. That's a good problem to have, or or better than the opposite. Busyness. Note this line because I think it's so true. Busyness serves as a kind of hedge against emptiness. Obviously, your life cannot possibly be silly or trivial or meaningless if you are so busy, completely booked, in demand every hour of the day. We're busy because of our own ambition or drive or anxiety because we're addicted to business and dread what we might have to face in its absence. We cover it up by being busy. So we don't have to face the emptiness inside. Do you know, uh, in the industrialized world, Americans work more hours, take less vacation, and retire later than any other nation in the world. And I think it's because of that fact. We're trying to hide, cover up the emptiness inside of us. We're looking for meaning. We're looking for significance. I had lunch with my son, uh, Max. He is uh, 26 years old now. He's he's a mechanical engineer. He works for Raytheon. He has a great job. Makes good money. I mean, he makes more money than I ever did until I was like in my 40s. Um, And he gets together uh, for lunch and he tells me, Dad, I hate my job. And I go, well, what's wrong with you? Why? You're making great money. And, and he said, he said, Dad, it's just so meaningless. I just have no passion. I, I don't care about what I want to do. And I said, so what are you going to do? He says, well, I want, I want to go back to school. Great. <laughs> I know what that means. <laughs> He said, okay, Max, you want to go back to school? What do you want to study? He said, Dad, I want to study theology. And I thought, oh, don't do that. (laughs) Look, look, Max, there are no jobs in theology. Really, you're making good money. Be an engineer. Um, (laughs) uh, But, you know, he said, Dad, it's what I'm passionate about. It's what I'm interested in. It's, It's what I want to do and it just feels like it would have far more significance. And I thought about him, and I I began to think, you know, he's probably right. Dang it. Um, And I was thinking about Ephesians chapter 5, because I think we're challenged to live thoughtful lives, to make sure we invest them so that they do make a difference and have purpose and significance. And uh, Ephesians 5 says this, Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Paul there is saying, hey, invest your lives carefully, thoughtfully. Make sure they make a difference. 
Make sure they're within God's agenda. We've been in a series on the Psalms, and the last few weeks have been heavy. I mean, two weeks ago, we looked at Psalm 51 and talked about the issue of forgiveness. Last week, Larry looked at Psalm 3, and we talked about the issue of lament, which is how you respond to suffering. This morning, the subject is not as heavy, but it's just as important. We're going to talk about the issue of purpose. And I want to do that by looking at uh, Psalm 127. Now, it's... uh, it, honestly, as Elsa read it, I doubt that any of you thought, oh yeah, this is a psalm about finding purpose in life. But I'm going to suggest to you this morning that it really is, that that's part of its big idea. This psalm is written by a man named Solomon. Um, Solomon was one of the kings of Israel, and he is known in history for being the wisest man who ever lived. He, he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. And uh, Solomon, probably more than any other person in history, has wrestled with this issue of meaning and significance and, and, and purpose. And that's what the whole book of Ecclesiastes is about. I mean, he tries everything in order to, to, to find some meaning, to take away the emptiness inside him. And this little psalm, Psalm 127, I think is really a, a, a poetic expression of what he found. Right? Now, the psalm is easily... Uh, dealt with by dividing it into two. The, the first two verses give us a principle. The last verses, three through five, give us an application of the principle. Verses one and two give us the principle, but gives us the principle by three assertions and then an opposite. It's like two sides of a coin. So I want to look at the three assertions and get the principle and then look at the opposite. So he says, unless the Lord builds the house, that's the first assertion, the builders labor in vain. Second assertion, unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand watch in vain. In vain you rise up, that's the third assertion, early and stay up late, toiling for your food to eat. Um, Now when we go to this, the first thing we think of is that what he's saying is that if the Lord's not in this thing, in this project, in this house, in the garden, it, it won't be successful. And that's really not what he's saying. Uh, um, he's not saying unless the Lord's in it, it won't be effective or success or or be an achievement. There's all kinds of houses that get built that are not part of God's agenda. He doesn't care about them, but they really turn out to be nice houses. They're great houses. Uh, It's not an issue of success. Success and effectiveness is not the measure of whether or not God's in something. You can be very, very successful, very, very effective, Create a great business, create a great home, create a, achieve a great project, develop a great practice, and yet God may not be in it. But the fact that he's not in it doesn't keep it from being success. And because it's successful doesn't mean that he is in it. That's not what Solomon is talking about here. The key to what he's talking about has to do with this word vain. If we put the verse back up just for a second, I want you to notice the word vain is mentioned three times here uh, in each verse. Labor in vain, watch in vain, in vain rise up. And it's always in a position of emphasis. Uh, And it it could actually be translated, it is totally in vain. So, uh, you know, unless the Lord builds a house, the laborers, the builders labor is is totally in vain. Or or if you guard a city, man, if you're watching it, God's not in it. Totally vain, totally vain, all your work and your effort. The word vain, an interesting word, it literally means empty, inconsequential, meaningless, without substance. 
This is a great time to be fishing in Colorado, uh, especially if you go to the Arkansas because there's this little critter called a stonefly and the stoneflies are molting. And fish love to eat these. They're about, oh, one and a half, two inches long at times. And what happens at this time of year is they crawl out on the rocks and they molt. They, their exoskeleton is shed off and then they crawl back into the water. So they're all in the water and the fish go nuts on them. Great time to fish. And if you go fishing, you, you walk down by the river and you notice on the rocks are all these stone flies. You get really excited. But when you get close to them, you realize that they're really just the shells of the stone fly. They're just the exoskeleton. There's no substance inside of them. They're empty. And what's fascinating is if you touch the, the shell of the stonefly, it just crumbles and the wind blows it away. They're vain. They're worthless. No substance. And that's what Solomon is describing here. If, if you're engaged in a task or an activity that isn't part of God's agenda, then it's worthless. It's meaningless. It doesn't pay. It doesn't have significance. Let me give you a silly illustration. Imagine that you're a construction worker and you're, you just need a temporary job and the agency sends you to an office and this, this construction company is going to hire you for the week. They tell you that the project is at this certain address and you write the address down. Only when you write the address down, you get it wrong. It's north and you go south. But you're going south on the street that you think it's on, and you see this construction project and go, oh, that must be the place. So you walk up to the foreman and say, hey, the office sent me, and the foreman gives you kind of this strange look, and then he says, okay, uh, go help them with the framing. Man, and you work hard all week long. You're working on the framing. You're doing a great job. You're giving your best effort, uh, um, and you're waiting for the paycheck. At the end of the week, you go back to the office, and you want your paycheck, and they say, hey, you never showed up. Uh, uh, I don't know what you did, but you didn't, you didn't do any work for us. And you said, but, but wait a second, I worked really hard. I did really good work. It doesn't matter. You get nothing because the project you gave your efforts to wasn't their project. And thus it was worthless. That's what Solomon is saying. Unless we invest our lives in God's agenda, they're empty. A lot of times I like to think of God's agenda as this huge circle. And the issue here that Solomon is getting at is that if we want to live lives that have significant substance, we need to make sure our efforts are inside the circle of his agenda and not on the outside. Inside, not on the outside. I want you to, uh, to get the principle here, and it's a really important principle. It's this, the significance of a task, of a thing, does not reside in the task itself, but rather in the task connection to an eternal God. Now make sure you get that. The significance of a thing does not reside in the task itself, but rather in the task connection to an eternal thing, eternal God. In other words, if what we're doing isn't what God is about, then it doesn't matter. Now, what's, the, the problem with that is we live in a world that, that tells us certain things have value, certain things are important. And a lot of times what our culture is telling us is important and significant really has nothing to do with God and God's agenda. Uh, we live in a world where, where the values of our culture are pretty topsy-turvy. I mean, just look at this last week in the free agent market in football. 
you know? Guys who play this stupid game on Sunday, we place incredibly high value on like $90 million over six years. Ridiculous. But that's what our culture values. And oftentimes what our culture values is not what God values. And Solomon's point is, it doesn't matter how hard you work, how effective you are, how much difference you think, how much of a difference you think you're making, how high you're climbing on the ladder success, unless the thing you're involved in is attached to an eternal God, it has no meaning. Samuel Taylor Coleridge was a 19th century poet. He describes an incident with his son. His son at this point was about three years old and his son woke up in the middle of the night and and he kept saying, uh, Mommy, touch me. Mom, touch me. Touch me. And his mom asked him, Why? Why should I touch you? I'm not here. Touch me so that I may be here. That is a haunting event. Because what the little guy is saying, unless you touch me, I have no substance. I'm not here. I'm just nothing. That is true for us who believe in Jesus Christ. If God doesn't touch what we're doing, it's not here. It's the, the touch of the finger of God that gives things significance and importance. Because when God touches them, they become part of what he's doing for eternity. You see, we are derivative creatures. We cannot formulate meaning and significance on our own. The only way we can get significance and meaning is to attach ourselves to somebody who has eternal significance and meaning, and that's God. So we have to connect what we're doing to him. And if we take God out of the picture, it's impossible to infuse whatever we're doing with meaning, with significance. I want to share a quote with you by a gal named Greta Christina. And she wrote this. She was writing an article for for, um, a skeptic inquirer. And she's talking about how terrified she is of death. And she's an atheist, okay? This is not a Christian writing here. This is an atheist. And I want you to observe her conclusions about the nature of reality with God outside, not in the picture. Fascinating. She says, the fact that your lifespan is an infinitesimally tiny fragment in the life of the universe, that there is at the very least a strong possibility that when you die, you disappear completely and forever, and that in 500 years, nobody will remember you, and in 5 billion years, earth will fall into the sun. This can be a profound and defining truth about your existence that you reflexively repulse, that you flinch away from and refuse to accept or even think about consistently pushing it to the back of your mind whenever it sneaks up for fear that if you allow it to sit in your mind, even for a minute, it will swallow everything else. She's saying, you know, take God out of the picture and you think about life and there's nothing there. Whatever you're doing, I I mean, you're just a blip in the time of the universe, in the progression of the universe, and even all of earth is going to end up in nothing. That renders everything in your life vain. She goes on, it can make everything you do and anything anyone else does seem meaningless, trivial to the point of absurdity. 
can make you feel erased, wiped out, wipe out joy, make your life seem like ashes in your hand. And then she tries to, to redeem the situation. Um, and she does it just arbitrarily, but, but by trying to give this meaning. She says, uh, um, she does find some hope, however. What, what matters is that we get to be alive. We get to be conscious. We get to be connected with each other and with the world. And we get to be aware of that connection and, and, and to spend a few years mucking around in its possibilities. We, we get to have a slice of time and space that's ours. And, and, and I think about that and I think, so what? I mean, you can say the same thing about an ant, right? They're, they're conscious, they get to be connected with each other, they get their slice of time and space for a moment. <laughs> you see, you take God out of the picture. It's very, very difficult to find meaning. The only way you find meaning is to attach yourself to something eternal, to his agenda, to his train marching through the universe, becoming part of what he's doing. So those are the three assertions. Let's look now at the contrast to that. So this is verse 2, the rest of it. He says, in vain you rise up early and stay up late toiling for food to eat and he adds for he grants sleep to those he loves and you read that and you go what's Solomon talking about here it just doesn't make any sense well I don't think it's a very good translation the NIV the version we were using for he grants sleep to those he loves it's one way to translate that verse a better way and I think this gets to the point for he gives to his beloved even in his sleep And you're thinking to yourself, oh, yeah, Nick, that makes a lot more sense. Um, (laughs) Well, remember, this is poetry, okay? And poetry is sometimes hard to understand. But what he says there, he gives to his beloved, even in sleep, does fit the context. What is happening here is Solomon is using an allusion to himself. If you go back to 2 Samuel chapter 12, when David and Bathsheba have this baby that they name Solomon, they're told by the Lord to call him Jedidiah. Jedidiah means beloved of the Lord and comes from the Hebrew word yadid, yadid. And it's the word that he uses in this verse. He gives to his beloved Solomon even in his sleep. And then go to 1 Kings chapter 3 and you'll remember that uh, at one point in Solomon's life he's asleep and he has this dream and in the dream God comes to him and says, Solomon, I will give you whatever you want. You just ask me and I'll give it to you. And Solomon very wisely asks for discernment, for wisdom. And while he is sleeping, God grants his request and gives him wisdom, makes him the wisest man in the world. And and I think Solomon is alluding to that event and, and saying, even when I slept, because I was in the midst of God's agenda doing his thing, he gave to me. In other words, my investment paid off in the midst of my sleep because I was pursuing God's agenda. Now, I want you to think about this. Have you ever wondered why it is that we sleep at all? 
I mean, a third of our life is spent sleeping. God could have designed us that we didn't need sleep, that we always had energy. So you got to wonder, what's the deal with this sleep when you basically become helpless and you're like a, a child? I think it's one of the ways that God reminds us that we're dependent creatures. We can't do this on our own. We're derivative. We have to attach to him to accomplish things. It, it, it reminds us of our weakness, sleep does. Another place that word yet did is used is in Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 12. It says that Moses is speaking here and he's blessing the tribes of Israel. And Benjamin is one of those tribes. So he says about the tribe of Benjamin, he said, Let the beloved, the Yadid of the Lord, rest secure in him, for he shields him all day long. And the one the Lord loves rests between his shoulders. And it's this great image of this child just asleep on its mother's or father's breast and yet getting taken where it needs to go. A number of years ago, I have five kids. Um, We were visiting Mason. That's not me and that's not my kid, but you get the idea. (laughs) We, we, (laughs) We were visiting Mesa Verde and at that point we had three of our kids and Chelsea was our youngest and you know, you walk around Mesa Verde and go down in the rooms and climb around. So we, we put Chelsea into this backpack, and, you know, I would carry her along. And one of the things I noticed is in between rooms, when we're climbing up ladders and crawling through things and getting to the next site, she'd conk out. And it was great, man. She'd conk out, wake up, great things to see, take another nap, wake up, great things to see. That's kind of what's going on here. The psalmist is saying is, look, when you're in the midst of God's agenda, he's carrying you along. He's giving to you. He's paying dividends on your, your investment even in the midst of your sleep. So if we want to live lives of significance, we need to make sure we invest those lives in God's purposes, His agenda, His, His kingdom, His rule and reign. Let me give you two images that I think will help cement this in your mind, this lesson. Um, one is the image of a man named Sisyphus. How many of you know who Sisyphus is? A few. Uh, you didn't study your Greek mythology, okay? Sisyphus is mentioned in Homer's Odyssey. Sisyphus had angered the gods, and because he had angered the gods, he was sent to hell. And in hell, he was given a specific task. And his task was to take this huge boulder and, and roll it up this hill. And then when it was almost at the top of the hill, it would always slip out of his grasp and roll back down to the bottom. And then he'd have to go down to the bottom and use all his might and all his effort and strain himself and get it all the way back almost to the top. And when it was there, it would slip out of his hand and roll back down. It was a Sisyphean task. And it was this, this torment that the gods uh, uh, committed him to as punishment. Meaningless. Again and again and again and again. Because it's a task not connected to to anything bigger than itself, and it's never accomplished. And that's how people live their lives. And the way I remember Sisyphean is to call him Sisyphus, because you don't forget Sisyphus. I, I ran across a Facebook page cartoon uh, for Sisyphus. Sisyphus, ugh, freaking rock rolled down again. Zeus likes this. Atlas, dude, try carrying the weight of the, the world on your shoulders. You remember Atlas holding the world. Uh, Parasphone, rock, roll. Has the gods of music heard about this? <laughs> Sisyphus, this is getting old. 
than a picture of Sisyphus pushing the boulder back up the hill. <laughs> it's just like this. It's interesting, as people have wrestled with the, the plight of Sisyphus, one of the men who, who, who tried to counteract this, this point or perspective was a man named Albert Camus. Albert Camus was an existentialist. Uh, some people consider him absurdist. And, and you read the statement, you, you understand why. Because the existentialist is trying to justify his meaning by his act outside of the context of being in a relationship with God. And this is what he says about Sisyphus. He says, the struggle itself towards the heights is enough to fill a man's heart. One must imagine Sisyphus happy. And I'm thinking, man, you have more faith than I do. Because there's nothing to be happy about if you're Sisyphus. Nothing. See, without God, you cannot find meaning. So the second image I want to give you is one of a hot air balloon. How many of you have ever ridden a hot air balloon? A couple? It's really a cool thing and very different than you expect. Um, you know, my expectation was you go up in the hot air balloon and it's real windy and it's kind of this trip. And, and what's interesting, you get in and you go up in the hot air balloon and it's deathly quiet. And there's absolutely no wind. And when I began to think about that, that made sense because the hot air balloon is being pushed along with the wind, so you don't feel any wind. It's just moving you along. And it's like the wind of God has you and it's moving you where it wants to take you. All right? And that's a great image. When, when you're about God's purpose and His agenda, He moves you along according to His end, according to His purpose. That doesn't mean that the ride can't be bumpy. Uh, and rough at times, but it does mean you are getting taken where, he want, where the wind wants you to go. And you see both kinds of people in this world. People who are working hard, thinking they're achieving a lot, making lots of money, being successful, uh, but God's not in the picture. And you have to ask yourself, what's the end? What's the meaning? What's the significance? And then there's other people who are just kind of, kind of riding the wind of God committed to his agenda and his purpose. And their lives are filled with meaning. You say, okay, Nick, I, I get the point, but it raises this really bothersome question. Uh, um, does that mean that if I want to live a life that's filled with meaning, I've got to go work for a church? Uh, does it mean I need to read my Bible all the time or be sharing my faith all the time or doing ministry all the time or just good deeds and serving? I, I mean, if it's, it's just those things that are part of God's agenda that have significance to it. What, what about the rest of life? What about walking the dog and cooking dinner and working in the garden and enjoying a I, I mean, how does the trivial and the small take on meaning if it's got to be part of God's agenda? Well, I think Solomon helps us here. He gives us an example, an application of the principle. And it's interesting to me, the example he picks. Look at verses 3 through 5. He uses children. And I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but raising kids can be pretty mundane, pretty trivial. I mean, how many times do you have to change a diaper? I mean, how, you know, you play Candyland for the 500th time. And you go, how is there any meaning in this? But Solomon says, no, that's, that's in the center of God's agenda. That has eternal significance. Notice what he says. Children are a heritage from the Lord. Uh, they're an assignment, offspring, a reward from him. 
Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are children born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver full of them. So he uses this image of somebody shooting an arrow. And then he says, they will not be put to shame when they contend with opponents in court. And opponents in court really is a reference to, it literally says, uh, um, they contend at the gate because the gate in those times, ancient times, was the place of business and court proceedings. He's saying if you, you have kids, you have somebody to support you. And an arrow, when you let an arrow go, it makes an impact way beyond itself. So Solomon is saying raising kids is this awesome investment in God's agenda in the world. I think sometimes we forget that. How significant being a parent is, being a mom is, being a dad. I, I ran across a little article written by Ben Patterson called Heart and Soul, and he talks about getting kind of a new perspective on being a parent. He writes this. He says, Blythe is a desert town on the Arizona-California border. My family and I were on our way back home from vacation when we stopped at McDonald's in Blythe. Loretta, my wife, asked me to hold Mary, our 18-month-old, while she went to the restroom and our three sons romped in the play area. Picture me, holding my daughter a few feet from the restroom doors as the babe from Blythe emerged from behind those doors. I mean, she was gorgeous, tanned, and dressed as, well, as young women are wont to dress in warm desert climates. And she was looking right at me smiling warmly. I straightened up and smiled back, flush with adolescent conceit that even though I was much older than she was, I must still be a very attractive man. Babes still notice. <laughs> Our smiles and eyes met for longer than a mere random encounter as she walked past. Then I noticed my reflection in the mirror along the wall and saw who she was smiling at. It was me, all right, but it wasn't Ben Patterson, the mature hunk. It was Ben Patterson, Mary's daddy. He was middle-aged, a little lumpy, and holding a precious child. That's what delighted the babe. My first reaction was embarrassment. Silly fool, you aren't what you thought you were. But as I continued to look in the mirror, I decided I liked what I saw there more than I liked what I first thought the babe saw. I like being Mary's daddy. I like it a lot. And ditto for Dan and Joel and Andy. It's better to be a daddy than a stud. My deflation turned to elation. Something incredibly, eternally significant about being a parent, about being a mom, about being a dad. That's invested. It, 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 it may not gain the world's attention. It may not gain their applause. It, it may not be what they hold up. It, it, it may not give you fame. But from God's perspective, it matters. What are you saying? Well, that's great, Nick. I'm single. I don't have kids. Well, don't miss the point. This is just an illustration that Solomon's given us. And the question then is, what else fits into the agenda of God? And I want to suggest to you this morning that God's agenda in life is much bigger than we may initially think. Okay? It, it just doesn't include the spiritual stuff. You know, one thing we have to remember is that there's no sacred, secular divide in life. 
oftentimes that's how we operate. There's the sacred part of life, church, ministry, reading your Bible, doing uh, service to others, and that has meaning. Then there's the rest of life, you know, cooking dinner, walking the dog, cleaning the house. But, but that's not true. There's no sacred and secular. It's all under his purview. This idea of sacred and secular actually come from the Middle Ages in the church then because what they were trying to do is saying, hey, if you really want to live a life of significance, you, you need to be in the church because that gave them power and control. So they said you had to be a monk or a priest or a nun. And all those other people outside the church, they just, their lives weren't as important. The reformers come along. Calvin and Luther. And they push back on that. In fact, they begin to argue that, no, whatever vocation, whatever job, whatever work you do, whatever task you, you do, if it's done to God's honor, it has just as much significance. That the blacksmith who, who smiths to the glory of God, his work is as important as the work of the pope. Because God infuses all of life. There's no sacred, secular distinction. And what that means is that even the mundane, and what we oftentimes think of as the trivial or the small, that's invested with incredible meaning because God is in it, in the everyday acts of life. And oftentimes what determines whether those acts have meaning or not is really our motivation and our intention and our attitude. Paul in 1 Corinthians says that if we do our work unto the Lord, unto Him, then it's infused with meaning and would do it to his honor and to his glory and for his sake. Brother Lawrence was uh, a man in the 1600s who was involved in the Thirty Years' War, got injured, left that, became a valet, and then decided to go into a monastery. Um, in the monastery, he wasn't an educated man or a scholar, so they wouldn't let him be you know, a person of influence, they assigned him to the kitchen. And for the next, oh, 30, 40 years of his life, he worked in the kitchen of the monastery, scrubbing pans and mopping floors and cooking dinners and serving the abbots and the monks. But Brother Lawrence decided that he was going to infuse every detail of his life with the presence and the power and the love of God. And everything he did, he was going to do for the love of God. And when he made that decision, and he, they put together a book after his life because uh, he, he wasn't a person of letters, but they interviewed him, talked with him. He became kind of this wise spiritual guide. And they put together a book called Practicing the Presence of God. It's filled with all this wisdom. But his goal was to take every task, whether it was scrubbing a pan, mopping a floor, cleaning up, washing the dishes, and infuse that uh, with this desire to love God. And suddenly those things that seemed to so mundane, so trivial, took on cosmic significance because of his heart and his attitude. See, we can move things in to the agenda of God where they're touched by his finger, by how we do them and why we do them. So, you can build a house. And you can build that house to indulge your selfishness and make it luxurious for your pleasure. Build that house so people look at it and are impressed with you and do it for your prestige. And if you build a house that way, then it's in vain, worthless. 
Or you can build a house and see it as a beacon of light in the neighborhood, a place of hospitality, a place where you're going to create this environment of love and concern in the presence of God and use it to minister to His people, a place of safety. And when you build a house that way, suddenly it takes on eternal significance, touched by the finger of God. Or you can build a business. And, and you can make sure that that business is profitable. You can cheat around the edges, uh, pay low wages, play the system, and be successful and worthless. Or you can build a business and do it with integrity and honesty and pay your employees fairly and make sure that God is honored in all its practices. And even though that business might not be successful or as successful as your competitors, that business may have eternal significance because how you operate it. Touched by the finger of God. You see, life takes on meaning, purpose, and significance when we invest our lives in God's agenda. Whether it be mundane or great, small or huge, if it's touched by his finger, it has meaning. So I want to go back and end with uh, Ephesians 5. Because I think it's great advice. He says, be careful then how you live. Not as wise unwise but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. I want to give you a couple minutes to reflect on your lives, to bow your heads, and I'm going to put up a couple questions that you can ask yourself about your activities and things in your life to help you think, is this really part of God's agenda or not? So take a moment, bow your head, reflect on your life, and after that, I'll pray and we will sing to end our service. Father, we want to live lives that are touched by your finger. Lives that have substance and significance and meaning. Lives that bring you honor and glory and express your love and your compassion to the world and express love for you. Help us be those kind of people. Help us be that kind of church. Help us invest our lives well in the agenda of God. We pray this in Christ's name.